0: Some years ago, a collection of essays, a Feshrift, was published in honor of William Still, the man under whose ministry Florence and I sat in Aberdeen, Scotland, for three years in the middle 1970s. In the review of the book, published by the Church of Scotland magazine, or published in the Church of Scotland magazine, the reviewer though having some positive things to say about Mr. Still, an influential and outspoken evangelical Christian in a denomination largely hostile to evangelical conviction, offered his observation that Mr. Still's sermons were over doctrinal, over long, and over the heads of the congregation. Now, we sat under those sermons for three years, Sabbath morning and Sabbath night, And I can attest to the fact that they were long. Considerably longer, sometimes by more than an hour, than any sermons I had heard before or have heard since. However, a large congregation, perhaps the largest Sunday evening congregation in the Church of Scotland and one of the largest Sunday morning congregations, came to hear those sermons and had for years. Old and young, men and women, Parents and children filled the church twice, Sunday after Sunday. So if they were over long, the people themselves did not seem to notice or to care. I never thought that the sermons were over doctrinal. But then in the Church of Scotland, the concentration on the teaching of the Bible, a careful consideration of what the statements of Holy Scripture actually mean, was then and is even more now a rarity. Mr Sermons, uh, Mr. Sill's sermons were much more like what effective Christian preaching had been for the previous two thousand years. He stressed, as all faithful Christian pastors should, what the Bible taught, and especially the essential central themes of biblical revelation. Those he explored in depth, with real insight, with an eye To the application of that truth to the ordinary daily life of Christian people. You can do a lot of that exposition and application in a two-hour long sermon. I would say his sermons were not overly doctrinal, they were richly doctrinal. And that's what I'm aiming for this morning, not a two-hour sermon, don't worry, but a doctrinal sermon. I want to explore in some depth, more depth, than is perhaps typical nowadays, even in evangelical and reformed churches. What the Bible says about, and so what we can say about, the incarnation of God. I don't apologize for requiring that you think with me. Think hard through some difficult and demanding truth. Man is born to think. And the fact that he does so little serious thinking is the index of his moral failure and his problem. I know you well enough to know that you want to think and will think about important things. After all, serious Christians will always want to know everything they possibly can about their Lord and Savior. Christians today may think very little about such things, but it's no compliment to them to say that. There were days when even the most ordinary Christians were preoccupied with deep questions. The church father Gregory of Nyssa tells us that when he arrived in Constantinople in the later years of the fourth century in the middle of the Aryan controversy, the issue of the proper identification or description of Christ's person was on everyone's lips. Garment sellers, money changers, food vendors, he wrote, They're all at it. If you ask for change, they philosophize for you about generate and ingenerate natures. If you inquire about the price of a loaf of bread, the answer is that the father is greater and the son inferior. If you speak about whether the bath is ready, they express an opinion that the son was made out of nothing. I'm pretty sure I've never heard an argument about the nature of Christ's person Or his relation to God the Father in the grocery store? Have you? But I doubt it's because we all agree or because we know everything we can know about this deep mystery. It's rather, I fear, because people don't care and they don't think it makes any difference. Feelings matter more than thoughts and doctrines matter still less. But of course... Any Christian should know the truth matters immensely, makes all the difference in the world. Jesus told us, remember, that it is the truth that sets us free. As we noted last time, our eternal life hangs on this fact that God became a man when Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. Our entire faith is built on this foundation. That being so... We ought to be very clear about precisely what it is that we believe about the person of Jesus Christ. The subject is difficult, however, and it requires thought. It took some centuries for the church herself to decide precisely what she could and could not say about the identity of the Lord Jesus or about what it means to say that he is at one and the same time both God and man. The Puritans were fond of quoting Augustine's remark that just as there are shallows in Scripture where a lamb may wade, so there are depths in Scripture where an elephant may swim. We're in the deep water this morning. The story of Christmas, you know, is beautifully simple and straightforward in at least one way. It is this perfect simplicity that makes it possible to retell the story in Sunday school Christmas pageants or to sing it in our Christmas carols and hymns, the Annunciation, the angels appearing to the shepherds, the Virgin Mary pregnant, and as they traveled to Bethlehem to register for the imperial tax heavy with child the birth of the baby boy, the wise men, and so on. These are the shallows. Even little children can wade in them. But that same history discloses a fact and a doctrine so complicated, so mysterious, so difficult accurately even to state that the early church's finest minds and hearts long struggled to represent the Bible's teaching in the most reliable form of words. Indeed, this is a doctrine so profound, so beyond human comprehension, that try as we might, we can only touch the key that unlocks the meaning of this greatest of all events. No one's hand has ever closed around it, nor, I suspect, will a human mind ever be able fully to grasp the nature of the Incarnation. Finitum non capax infinity, the theologians say, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite now John, in the prologue to his gospel, tells us nothing about the baby and the manger or the shepherds or the wise men. He gives us no details at all about the lord's birth, but he tells us what it was that ha- happened when Jesus was born. What happened was as Christian theology now puts it, the incarnation of God the Son. At one level, we understand that. Jesus was God, and now he had become a man. But think of the problems posed by John's statement. The Word became flesh. Or, as we might otherwise take John's meaning, combining his statements in verse 3 and verse 14, the creator of the earth, and the heavens and everything in them now became a man one of his own creatures did God the son by so becoming a man cease to be God or at least cease to be as fully God as he had been before both reason and scripture combine to assert the impossibility of that God cannot cease To be God, he is in his very nature eternal and unchangeable. And indeed, the scripture repeatedly represents Jesus Christ, now a man, as the living God. John says as much here when he speaks of his glory. But if he remained God, in what sense was he now a man? How much like you and me is he actually? The Gospels represent him as a human being who had to grow up from infancy, who was dependent upon his parents, his mother and father, who grew not only physically but intellectually and spiritually. He knew more when he was older than he had before. When he was young, he matured as a human being. He was, as we are, subject to weakness. He got tired, hungry, sick, and sore. When cut, He bled. He needed food and sleep. There were many things he did not know and many things he could not do. Yet how can we say such things about someone who is at the same time Almighty God, pure spirit, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent? Questions like these almost immediately began to agitate the church's mind and led to a succession of false starts in the effort to understand and to state the identity of Jesus Christ. We have the evidence of that already in the New Testament, such as John's first letter, where the apostle mentions one such false understanding of Christ's person. And the mistakes were entirely predictable. There were those who held that Christ being God could not possibly have been a true human being. And so, in fact, he only appeared to be so. Conversely, there were others who proposed that no true man could possibly be God, and consequently Jesus Christ could only be a man, though a man elevated to a higher status and position than any man had been before. A sort of demi-God. He could not be the living God precisely because the Gospels describe him as so genuinely a human being. Don't suppose that such ancient opinions are of no relevance to us today as if we've moved beyond such obvious errors. They are in fact exactly the opinions of a great many professing Christians today. Many liberal Christians find it impossible to believe in the deity of Jesus Christ and think of him rather as a man who enjoyed an unprecedented, unique, profound closeness to God. Many conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians, on the other hand, whatever they may confess when they recite the Creed, actually have a view of Jesus in which his deity has overwhelmed his humanity, so much so that they don't really think of him as a human being like you or like me. He is instead superhuman, a superman, if you will. Back and forth the opinions went, slowly, and in fits and starts, each proposal carefully being corrected by the examination of the word of God until the church, for all time, settled her mind on what could safely be said about the incarnation and about the incarnate God. And many of you will know that formula. Jesus Christ was truly God and truly man. Equal with the Father according to his deity and equal with us according to his humanity. He is to be acknowledged in two natures. One humanity or one human and one divine. And those two natures exist in his person without confusion, without alteration. But equally exist indivisibly and inseparably. The characteristic properties of each nature perfectly preserved in their union with the person of Jesus Christ. Taking the data of Holy Scripture together, this has seemed to the believing church ever since to be what can and what must be said about Jesus Christ. To say, as John says, that the Word became flesh, the creator of heaven and earth became a human being, is to say that this single person now exists as both the living God and as a true and authentic human being. But what does that mean? How is that possible? How in a single personality can there exist true and authentic humanity and true and authentic deity without mixture or confusion? The church with her Bible open before her, has never sought to explain this or to answer such questions. The reality she knows is too great for us. It is beyond us. Our minds are too small to comprehend it. But in seeking to state the doctrine, to make clear exactly what is being asserted and what is not being asserted, the church went on to make several two in particular, important clarifications. The first of these was to say that when God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, became a man, he took to himself an impersonal human nature. Now that phrase strikes us as being about as clear as mud. What on earth is an impersonal nature? Well, think about it. There are never... To Jesus Christ. There is always everywhere in the Bible but one. Never in the Gospels does the Lord Jesus speak of Himself as we, as if He were two people, one God and the other man. He is everywhere spoken of, He everywhere speaks of Himself in the singular. I am the Lamb of God. I am the light of the world. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, and so on. Jesus is a person, an individual, if you will. But Jesus, as we said last time, did not begin to be a person when he was conceived in the womb of his virgin mother. He had been a person from eternity past. It was he, his brother Jude writes, the very person of Jesus who delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt during the days of Moses. Personal pronouns before the Incarnation, personal pronouns after the Incarnation, but always in the singular. As John puts it in verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. And now we have seen His glory. At the Incarnation, God did not unite himself with an independently existing human being with another individual, with another person. Rather, he added to his already existing person a human nature, however mysteriously, however inscrutably. We can say the words. We hardly understand what they mean. But however we attempt to understand this, the human nature that was formed in Mary's womb did not exist by itself, but was at the very first instant united with and taken up into the person of God the Son. Say what you will about this strange phrase, the impersonality or non-personality of Christ's human nature. If Jesus Christ is one person, a person who existed from all eternity as God, then God did not add a person to himself but only a nature at the Incarnation. So the church's formula, one person, two natures. An impersonal nature is obviously a very difficult idea. We encounter no impersonal natures in our experience of human life. Person and nature for us, are always two sides of the same coin. So we struggle to know what the phrase might mean. But how else are we to confess, as the Bible teaches us to confess, that there is but one Jesus Christ who existed from all eternity, but who has now become also and truly a human being. To say that Christ's human nature is impersonal is important protection against any failure to appreciate the integrity of his two natures, that he is and remains truly God and truly man, even as he remains one person. Two distinct natures in one person is the burden of the phrase impersonal human nature. The second clarification of the Church's understanding of the Incarnation and of Jesus as the God-Man was what came to be known as the doctrine or the teaching of the communication of the attributes. Once again, some of you will be saying to yourself, I've been a Christian for years and years and I've never heard once about the communication of any attributes. Perhaps not. But whether you knew what to call it, you assumed the fact described by that phrase. To be sure, it isn't the baby in the manger or the wise men, but it is an essential element of the Christmas story. Again, there is something of immense importance at stake here, the very nature of the incarnation itself. How carefully the church's best and wisest men considered these questions from every side, from every vantage point. They understood that errors at the foundation, will inevitably create disaster later on. If the incarnation is rightly underst- not rightly understood, sooner or later nothing else will be either. The first great work on the incarnation by the 4th century father Athanasius made precisely this point. Get the incarnation wrong and by a fixed law you will get salvation wrong as well. And so just as The full integrity of each of the two natures, one fully divine, the other fully human, was secured and protected by our confession of the impersonality of Christ's human nature. So the union of each nature with the person of Christ was protected and secured by this confession of the communication of attributes or properties. That is, the communication of the properties or attributes of each nature to the one person of Jesus Christ. They were not, these properties or attributes, of the two natures. They were not communicated to each other. That would have destroyed the integrity of each Jesus Christ is not partly God and partly man. He isn't a humanized God. He isn't a deified man. He is both God and man, each nature in its perfection and its essential identity, each nature separate from the other, but both natures coexisting in a single person. As I said, you have believed this even if you never thought about how to describe it. As you know very well from your reading of the Gospels, sometimes things are said about Jesus or by the Lord Jesus that could be said only of of or by a human being. And sometimes things are said about Jesus or by Jesus that could only be said of or by God. But it's always and everywhere the same Jesus who is being described or who is speaking. Jesus can say, I thirst, and he can say, before Abraham was, I am. The one statement only a man can make. The other statement, only God. But both statements were made by the same person. The deity and the humanity belong to the same person. And so in those early centuries, the church was on, put on its mettle to answer questions like these. Ask yourself if you've ever thought of questions like these. Is it right? Is it possible to say that Mary is the mother of God? This was a question asked long before the veneration of Mary reached the lengths to which it would go in the medieval church. It's not a question about Mary, but about Christ himself, about the incarnation. Could it ever be said that God, the eternal God, had a mother? On the other hand, did she give birth merely to a man? She didn't give birth to a, na- to a nature, she gave birth to a person. But if that person was God, was she then God's mother? Or in a similar fashion, can we say that God suffered and died on the cross? How can the eternal die? But if Jesus is God and died on the cross, can we not sing Isaac Watts' immortal line when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man the creature's sin? And then there was this question. Is it right for Christians to worship Jesus Christ per se, or are we to worship only his divine nature? We are commanded not to worship the creature, only the creator. Christ's human nature is obviously a created thing. The man Christ Jesus is a creature. Precisely how then are we to worship Jesus Christ? This is the swirl of issues that inevitably were raised by John's statement that the Word became flesh. And the church's solution to these problems a solution that has satisfied her greatest minds ever since is this way of speaking about the communication of the attributes or the properties. Each nature, the divine and the human, is defined by a set of properties. Think about it. How would you define a human being? How would you define God? The properties would overlap somewhat Because man is made in the image of God. But in most respects, the attributes or properties of each nature would be different, very different. God is eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Man, on the other hand, begins to be at a point in time, is possessed of only modest powers, knows only a few things, and can be in one place at a time. A man could be weary, sitting by the well in Samaria, but God could not. God knows the future in exhaustive detail. Man does not. But both John and Paul say that Jesus created all things and say that he was ignorant of many things and that he died. Again and again, the Bible says things about Jesus that could be true of only one of his natures. And this is what the early theologians meant by the phrase communication of the attributes. The attributes of each separate and distinct nature are communicated to the person of Jesus Christ. We can say of Jesus what is true of a human being. And we can say of Jesus what is true only of God. The attributes of each nature have by the incarnation been imparted to the one person. We can say that Jesus died even if God cannot die. We can worship Jesus Christ as God even if he were truly a creature, a man. We can even say that Mary is the mother of God even though God is eternal. We can say those things because the properties of each nature belong To the one person, Jesus Christ. God did not die on the cross, to be sure. But Jesus did. And Jesus is God. God the Son was not born to Mary. But Jesus was. And Jesus is God the Son. Is your head hurting yet? Do you see the point? We are certainly not explaining this. We do not know how Jesus is God and man. At one and the same time. We have... No inkling of the personal psychology of the incarnate God. We do not know how the same person can be omniscient and ignorant. How he could be everywhere and at only one place at a time. How he could be eternal and dead at the same time. But that's what we must believe about Jesus since he is but one person And at one and the same time, he is God and he is true man. It was because the church understood that the identity of Jesus was fundamental to everything she believed and everything she hoped for, for herself and for the whole world, that she devoted her faithful intellect so carefully and at such length to seek the best, the most accurate, the truest way to describe who Jesus is and what. He is. She knew he was both her maker and her savior, her elder brother and her eternal king. She knew she would never understand this, but she also knew she needed to describe as accurately as possible what she could know about the incarnation of God. God had revealed this truth in his word, and she wanted to go as far as divine revelation would take her, And then not one step further. Surely we ought not to regret spending some time now and again just thinking through the extraordinary, the stupendous thing that happened. The deep, the impenetrable, the wonderful mystery of the event when God became man. And is it true? And is it true this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall, the maker of the stars and sea become a child on earth for me. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, no all, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare, that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. Amen.